This is Dan DeMarco, and you are listening to Across the Board on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Mike Flanagan, and you're listening to Across the Board on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Greg Gilchrist, and you are listening to Across the Board on the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and I'd like to welcome you to episode Across the Board, the podcast that focuses on corporate governance, boards of directors, and management of strategic risk. Today, I have back with me podcast favorite, Amy Barnard-Bond. She is a strategic advisor to boards of directors and executive coach to many C-suite members. She specializes in accelerating the success of C-suite executives and partners with leaders and teams to help scale their businesses. She has shaped many company cultures and strategic initiatives as an executive at a Fortune 20 company, smaller businesses and nonprofits, and leading multiple functions, including human resources, legal IT, communications, and compliance. In this episode, we take up the failures of the Thoranus Board of Directors. We touch upon a wide variety of institutional, corporate governance, controls, and other failures at the company, which led to its demise. It's a fascinating exploration of a case that's literally torn from the headlines. I know you will enjoy it. This podcast will help you understand as a board member your role and your role going forward in this type of situation. Across the Board is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back again for another episode. I'm thrilled to have back with me Amy Barnard Bond. She is a well-known corporate governance, uh, compliance, and leadership expert. She consults a wide variety of corporations on all of those and many more topics. And she is here to talk about one of my favorite subjects, which is Theranos. But what we're going to focus on today is the failures at the board level. So, Amy, with that incredibly long-winded introduction, uh, welcome, and thank you for taking the time to visit with me today. Oh, thanks, Tom. Thanks for having me. So obviously, there's been a lot written uh, about the Theranos case, uh, lots that both you and I have digested, um, and it's it's almost, a, uh, I think, the situation of, of where to begin, but with regard to the board of directors, where would you suggest we begin? Great question. There's a lot here. Um, maybe we could start with you know, just a quick acknowledgement of what a board should do, which of course is to make informed business judgments. And that's where it's interesting to look at this case. Um, you know, we might want to start with the management team, uh, Tom. One of the interesting things about, about Theranos is really who was driving the corporation and what support did management have in, in running an effective corporation. And if you look uh, with hindsight at how the company was structured, there's a lot of evidence that all the decisions were made by Elizabeth and at least while he was there, her second in command, uh, Ramesh Sunny Balwani. And so if you just look at those two people, you've got, um, you know, a very smart, uh, 19 year old, uh, woman who went to college for a year and then dropped out who had no background, you know, really in, in medical, um, or healthcare. And then you have, uh, so the older gentleman who had no training in biosciences or medical devices, had business and IT experience in, in, at Microsoft and Lotus Software, um, and then became you know, president when he joined in 2009. And there's a lot of evidence that um, they comprised the executive committee of the board and that there was, uh, there was no other um, 
group really in charge. They didn't have a general counsel for a very long time until, gosh, I think it was 2015. And then when they hired a general counsel, uh, she had a political background. She'd been on uh, Hillary Clinton's staff and then had done some litigation, but she had no health care expertise. So, so that's something that I think a board would, would normally want to look into. Um, the CFO, they had a, briefly a CFO very early on in the company, and then they had no CFO until the last year. So if you can imagine operating a company that had taken $700 million from investors that had been valued at one point at $9 billion without a CFO, that's kind of interesting and something that I would think a board uh, would be interested in. Another so, thing uh, that was probably oh, – sorry, go ahead. Yeah, for instance, Francine McKenna wrote that uh, uh, there were no audited, audited financial statements during this time right. period. In addition to Which, no CFO. Yeah. So no, yeah. none of the investors, none of the board had the benefit of audited financial statements. So, uh, yeah, um, could we just agree lots of red flags? <laughs> yeah, and then one near and dear to our hearts, Tom, is uh, how about no compliance and ethics officer? Absolutely. You know, until January 2015. Um, so, and you're talking about a very highly, you and I both know that a lot of startups don't necessarily have the, the funding or resources to have a compliance and ethics officer right off the bat. And I get that. Usually there's at least a general counsel at some point to perhaps do a dual-hatted role. Um, but usually at some point, you know, you need to think about that. But you, you really need to think about it when you're in a highly regulated environment like blood testing. Um, you know, uh, they were entering a space that, that was highly regulated. Um, and, and so that's important. And they didn't have that there. And, and of course, there's a lot of other reasons why that becomes important later, because some of the systems and um, governance that would have been in place if they'd had an effective compliance and ethics program would have brought a lot of these issues to light a lot earlier. Um, and then another thing that's interesting is the, the lab director you know, the lab director is, is pretty core to their business. Um, they were involved in high-complexity testing, and um, they had a lab director, uh, and the lab director quit pretty abruptly uh, one day before the, um, the carrier reporting hit. And under his contract, he had to give 60 days' notice because, as you can imagine, the, the government doesn't want any, any break in, in having a lab director uh, in, in a blood lab. And that's, that should have been, you know, in my opinion, uh, a big red flag to the board um, to, to investigate, gosh, why is our lab director resigning? They're really critical to our business. Even if you don't know anything about the science or pathology of, of what um, the science is behind the company, any key employee like that uh, potentially should have been investigated. Um, in, in fact, it turns out that that the lab director had sent hundreds of emails to himself um, at or around the time of his resignation. Um, and again, that could have been evident, you know, a, a well-meaning company or a company that wanted to look into issues would have perhaps contacted the person or used that 60 days notice to interview them. In some of the emails he talks about, and this is in the, the book that Carrie wrote, Bad Blood, he talks about his Hippocratic Oath and how the lab director talks about how he felt ethically, um, you know, in, in a very bad spot. I think to you or me, Tom, that would have been a, a huge signal if we were in compliance and ethics and, and if the, the company had been set up properly around 
employee complaints and around red flags and having an ethical safety net, they would have looked into this. Um, and potentially they would have looked into the lab issues, found serious problems, and they um, would have potentially shut down the lab, I think. Some companies, as you know, when they find a problem like this, they self-disclose. They go to the regulators. I think Zenefits did this you know, pretty well. And then they, they fix it, and then they can start up again. Um, this could have been an opportunity for that to happen. And instead, it's my understanding that, that uh, the lab director was disparaged um, by Elizabeth, that uh, some pretty rough things were said about him. And frankly, the fact that he'd resigned or how he'd resigned or his concerns probably never got to the board. It's really unclear whether any information that was important got to the board. Um, so those are those are some interesting things. Uh, you know, the, the stock, have you looked at the, the control, Tom, in terms of the, the voting shares and that kind of thing? That's pretty interesting in this case as well. Right. So, Amy, um, you sit, uh, if not in Silicon Valley, certainly near Silicon Valley, you've worked uh, in a wide variety of roles uh, with Silicon Valley companies. And I guess the question I have in, in looking back in hindsight now, it may appear clearer um, what was going on, but what what really should a board start asking uh, in in uh, for a startup, even one that is, uh, if whether you call it disruptive or whether you call it innovative, with technology that is so different, so unique, that really could make a huge change in the marketplace. Wouldn't what types of questions should a board start asking, and how early should they start asking those questions? Well, I usually advise people to ask them before they join a board. Actually, I recently did a a, a workshop on how to risk-proof your board search. And I think it's really important that board members know what they're getting into. Um, so, you know, I have them ask things like, "What is the senior management and board turnover? Who are the key? Who have who? Who are in the key management roles? And what are their qualifications? And how's it going? Um, you know, what's the CEO's interaction with the board? How transparent is it? And what kind of access to senior management does the board have? Are there regular reports by key employees? Um, you know, what are some recent examples of board suggestions that have been adopted by management? I like that question because it demonstrates whether, in fact, senior management is open to suggestions from the board or whether this is a rubber stamp board. And if I'm going to join, you know, am I expected just to just to go along with everything or, or am I going to be allowed to, to do my job representing shareholders and, and patients in this case um, in asking the right questions? And then I, I also look for, you know, as a former compliance officer, does the board of management take its take its responsibility for ethical behavior and internal control seriously, or do they view such things as red tape? And of course, in a highly regulated industry like healthcare or financial services, board members need to be, you know, aware that there's a greater degree of scrutiny than perhaps in, in other industries where it might not be as high. So it needs to be proportionate. And I also don't mean to suggest that the board should take over day to day responsibility for the corporation because there's there's definitely a boundary there and they should they should not be doing that they have an oversight responsibility they do not have responsibility for day-to-day management but they need to make sure they're informed and in this case they needed to be informed of, of risk areas and mitigation plans and there's there's no evidence that that ever took place 
So how does a board begin to take back control? Uh, is it asking these series of questions and becoming perhaps more strident or more demanding, more aggressive? Or once you've lost control, is that it? Great question. I think that in this case with Theranos, it's it was just, there was a, a huge structural impediment to the board actually being able to do anything. And that comes down to the super voting shares that, that Elizabeth had. She owned 55% of the shares about uh, of a Theranos, but more importantly, she had stock that gave her 100 votes per share of Theranos stock. And this isn't unusual. It's, it's common, actually, increasingly common in Silicon Valley. It's often used with family-owned businesses to concentrate power in the family in case there's a takeover, that kind of thing. But 100 per share is quite a lot, and that gave her 99% of the voting power. It also meant that the board did not have a quorum unless she was present. So technically, if you just look at it straight on with that, the board is actually powerless. Um, now, in, in a normal healthy board, hopefully that's not the case for, for people who are on this call and, and who are in corporations or working for them or on boards, um, you could... Uh, the board could, if they're not educated around around labs, in this case, for example, they could hire a consultant to be an independent consultant to the board to help educate them on the types of questions they should be asking in order to fulfill their, their governance responsibilities, their fiduciary duties. Um, they could have ordered an independent investigation. We've certainly seen that happen, and that that's what I think as compliance officers we would advise our corporations to do in, in the case where there might be some some questions around whether management has acted appropriately. And frankly, when you've got ethical management in place, they would they would prefer to have an independent investigation as well. Um, it clears their name. It shows good faith, effort to comply, and, and not to do anything inappropriate. And I think what we've seen here is that, uh, you know, if you don't do a, an appropriate investigation, you're basically inviting the government to do it for you. That's a great tagline. I may just have to name the episode that. <laughs> <laughs> Go for it. Yeah. So um, what uh, what lessons, uh, you've detailed several different points, but are there some uh, overall lessons you might suggest to a um, high-flying startup uh, now to either for the board to get their hands around the controls, get their hands around the audited financial statements, or, or perhaps even go in a different direction? Yeah, I would, I would make sure that, that the board of any company, you know, I'd, go, I'd turn to Warren Buffett, actually. I like, he has three criteria for board members. He wants people that are business savvy, that are shareholder oriented, and that have a special interest in the company. And I really, I really like the simplicity of that because if you're business savvy, um, you're going to appreciate the trials and tribulations and, and the risks that a, and the appreciation for the heavy burden that a CEO carries because they work their, their tails off. They've got a lot of pressure. Um, and uh, so the board needs to have a, a harmonious enough working relationship with the CEO. Um, they need to be shareholder oriented. They need to watch out for shareholder value. But then they also should have a special interest in the company. You know, they shouldn't just be doing it for a marquee title. And, and a lot of people have commented on that that was the, the case here, that it was just a prestige board. 
um, designed to help get investor money for Theranos, which it did quite well. Um, didn't do its job maybe in governing, but, but certainly attracted investors and a lot of PR to the company. Um, so I would recommend that, that CEOs and boards sit down and, and really talk about what their value creation model is, who their, who their stakeholders are. You know, in this case, I don't think the health of patients was taken into account. I know John Carreyrou, who's spent most of his life uh, in the recent few years covering, covering Theranos, has said he wished that if he had one thing he could ask Elizabeth, because he was never actually formally allowed to interview her, she never granted an interview to him, he would just say, you know, how did you justify to yourself the risks that you were taking to patients? And and that should be the elephant in the room, I think, for boards and CEOs to really sit down and think about, okay, we've got this great idea, we've got this great business model. Um, what's the what's the worst case scenario and what do we always need to keep in the back of our mind? You know, if if it's banking institutions, of course it's banking customers. Um, that kind of thing. And if you start from that place, I think you're gonna avoid a lot of problems because you're going to just keep that front and center. And then if that guides everything you do, you're going to look into an employee complaint. You're going to think about, gosh, the lab director just quit. We should look into that. I wonder why they're leaving the hottest company that just won all these awards for innovation, you know, potentially in the world, that kind of thing. Amy, uh, do you see or do you sense that corporations in Silicon Valley and perhaps other places where you consult are beginning to take some of the lessons we have seen from the Theranoses, the Ubers, the other companies that have had uh, either sustained or spectacular growth and perhaps their corporate governance structures had not kept up? Is there a recognition that something has to change? I think so. I, I, I am an optimist, and I would like to think that this is a healthy, um, you know, watershed moment for startups that have unicorn status that get all this money, and that boards will be more careful, and that CEOs, frankly, will be more open to being questioned. It is, it is tough. Um, the the dance of being on a board, staying independent enough from the CEO, but getting along well enough um, to get business done is not to be underestimated. You know, a board needs to both um, give, give a CEO wings to be innovative and to come up with new ideas and to take calculated risks. Business is about taking risks. And so by no means am I suggesting that, that a board is there to, to be a cop. Um, but they do need to also have this dual role of, of, again, giving them wings, but also then uh, telling them when they need to, to not take that flight and, and that this is too risky and pointing it out. They need to be a, you know, the conscience of the company and, and rein in things that are, that are going to be an unrewarded risk to the company. They want to look for rewarded risk. Well, Amy, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time, but I hope that companies will certainly take your message to heart. And more importantly, I hope you will continue to spread this message. So uh, I look forward to our next conversation, uh, whether it be on Theranos or uh, yet another uh, 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 something that has come up in the public record. So thank you very much. Oh, you're welcome, Tom. 
Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Across the Board. If you have any questions about any of the topics we discussed, you can reach me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. You can reach Amy at amy at bernardbond.com. That's A-M-I-I at B-A-R-N-A-R-D-B-A-H-N.com. I hope you'll join us again for our next episode of Across the Board. Across the Board is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.